0: get started learn more about high yield cash accounts at betterment.com investing involves risk performance is not guaranteed cash reserve offered through betterment llc and betterment securities betterment is not a bank welcome to the jill on money podcast it is sunday december 20th and we are presenting the second part of our interview With Scott Galloway. He's an NYU professor. He's a serial entrepreneur. He is an author. He is a podcaster. And his newest book is called Post Corona: From Crisis to Opportunity. And in this second part of our interview, we're going to talk about what happens next for commercial real estate, all these companies where people are working from home. What is the future of the urban life in these big, huge hubs like the Bay Area, New York City? Here is more of our interview with Professor Scott Galloway. So I want you to talk a little bit about how you see work from home and that trend, what happens to that idea when kids go back to school five days a week and when people are sort of used to this idea of, hey, I kind of dig the fact that I can go grocery shopping in the middle of the day and get my work done by the end of the day. So how do those two ideas, working from home and the impact on commercial real estate. Where do you see that going post-COVID?
1: One of the largest asset classes in America is commercial real estate, gross dollar value of around $12 trillion. The first building I worked in at Morgan Stanley, 1251 Avenue of the Americas, they track how many people in the building for security reasons. It averaged during the week, pre-COVID, 8,500 people. It's averaging 500 right now. And once we have a vaccine, it'll absolutely increase, but I don't think it's ever going back to 8,500. If you think about it, remember there's all those graphs you used to see of the amount of time people are spending across different mediums, and you'd see that digital was 40% of people's time, but only 10% of advertising. So we knew Google and Facebook were going to boom, because over time, money kind of follows time and attention. If 20 to 30% of our time shifts away from commuting and from being in an office, which I think it will, to the home, you're going to see 2 to $3 trillion in value shift from commercial to residential real estate. So it's a terrible time to be an office read. It's a terrible time to be a restaurant that serves the lunch crowd. There's a huge ecosystem serving headquarters all over the nation. But you're going to see Williams-Sonoma and restoration hardware stocks hit all-time highs. You're going to see lumber prices hit a new high. You're going to see residential real estate and everything that serves them. Absolutely boom. There's going to be a dispersion of trillions of dollars from commercial and retail real estate to residential.
0: It's amazing to consider that. I mean, I guess it's also amazing. Look, I'm a New York City person, so it kind of scares me. So this idea of commercial real estate being under this dramatic pressure, I, I, I just saw it in real time. I was back in the city a few weeks ago, walking to my dentist. By the way, there's an industry that really does need to be, I don't know, technology needs to come into dentistry. I don't know what's going on. They like hack at your teeth with metal implements still. But I'm walking midtown. No one's there. And it freaked me out a little bit because I'm on the Upper West Side. Life seems pretty normal. You walk the dogs in Riverside Park. Everything's fine. You go Midtown, it's a ghost town. So what is the future of a place like New York City or, you know, San Francisco or, you know, Boston? What, how do you see post-corona? Is there opportunity there or is that the flavor of a city going to change? I think it's
1: situational, so uh, let's just look at San Francisco, and people expand the trends in San Francisco to the broader kind of macro viewpoint around cities. I think San Francisco, like any consumer product, has just become expensive but bad. I just think it's overpriced and not a great place to live, and you could blame it on civic management or lack of housing, whatever it is. But if you look at economic history, post-pandemic, cities usually thrive. And there is something around bumping off one another. There is something about the serendipity of having people in a crowded, dense place. I'm actually quite bullish on cities. Uh, I think that once we have a vaccine, you're going to see people return to the city. The complexion will change. There'll be fewer office buildings. But if New York, keep in mind, New York real estate, uh, where I live in Soho, is $2,500 a square foot. So if it goes to $1,500 a square foot, that's not the worst thing in the world. And Facebook... And Amazon and Apple and Google are all doubling down on New York real estate because the most valuable person in any company right now is a double E from Dartmouth and at 25. And she wants to live, at least for a few years, in a city. So I'm actually quite bullish on cities. And what we've decided in this pandemic that's sort of strange is that our collective goal seems to prop up the market such that rich older people stay rich. And what people don't realize is that when there's a destruction in value, there's huge opportunity or a transfer of wealth from older people to younger people, from asset holders to people who are getting assets. The reason I'm economically secure now is that as I was coming into my prime income earning years, after the market crash of 2009, I was able to buy Amazon at uh, half the price it was trading at at 2007. So if real estate in Brooklyn and New York and some major cities comes down, and stock prices were to come down, that's not a bad thing for young people. That's opportunity. So I think cities still have a very, I think the death of cities, the rumor has been greatly exaggerated. We constantly see cities aggregate more and more wealth, more and more influence, and young people want to be in cities.
0: Talking to you in a week where we're going to get some unicorn IPOs. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about one that has happened and one that will happen, which is Airbnb. By the time this airs, Airbnb will already be public. So let's start with Airbnb.
1: I'm very bullish on Airbnb. If you think of it, I think Airbnb is the strongest brand as we sit here now in the history of travel and hospitality. People love Singapore Airlines. It's not relevant to most people. People like Four Seasons, but it's only relevant to luxury consumers. If you do a search for key terms or look at key term search volume and you type in any major city and then you put a suffix on Hilton, Orlando Hilton, Orlando Holiday Inn, Orlando Four Seasons, and then Orlando Airbnb, the number of searches for that city in Airbnb is greater than the rest combined. So Airbnb is already the strongest brand in hospitality globally. I think COVID plays to their strengths. I think people want better value if you travel with a family. Renting a two-bedroom apartment is much more economically viable. It also has the mother of all moats and that is you and I could start a ride-hailing company in the Hamptons with 10 or 20 million. We could create local demand, people who want rides, we could create local supply drivers. What you can't create though with 20 million or even a billion at this point is a apartment sharing or rental firm because while you need Local supply, you need global demand because 95% of the people renting a home in Southampton will be from different corners of the earth. And Airbnb has more people on their platform now than the population of California 40 million. It has 7 million rental units greater than the top five hotels combined and 4 million hosts most of whom are women in their 30s who make a good living. I don't think it's arbitraging people's human capital like an Uber or a DoorDash and circumventing minimum wage laws with software. So simply put, I think this company is a juggernaut that's going public despite a pandemic, whereas a company like DoorDash is going public because of a pandemic, because of the surge in home delivery and food. So the question is, which company does better when the vaccine is here? So I think Airbnb is a juggernaut. I think DoorDash is experiencing a sugar high from the increase in deliveries. I think Airbnb is arguably going to be one of the most successful companies to go public in a long time. I'm obviously very bullish.
0: All right. Now I want to end with our joint love of the hated industry of financial services. So I want to talk about some of the quote unquote innovation in financial services. You write extensively. And you've spoken about the dangers of Robinhood. Can you talk a little bit about why you believe this is a a very dangerous app for those who are using it in terms of their entree into investing?
1: Well, if you look back on Facebook, what Facebook figured out was a way to kind of go down the brain stem, if you will, and figure out that things like endless scroll, affirmation via like created addictive components, gamifying such that young men and women were spending too much time on the app. We've seen an explosion in self-harm, an explosion in suicide, especially among young girls, because they no longer have to endure not getting invited to a party, but they see it play out in real time, alone, on their phone, in their room. And these companies appear to have absolutely prioritized shareholder value over the health of our young people or our commonwealth. Their platforms have been weaponized by bad actors who pervert our elections. They don't seem to to really care about anti-competitive behavior. What if we could go back in time and say, all right, this company is a menace. We need to put in place regulation. I think that's where we are right now with Robin Hood. And that is, I think there's a lot of young men who are at home, bored, in their parents' basement. They get a stimulus check and they put it into the market. And instead of trading or even investing, They are basically gambling. And if you look at the addictive gamification, random rewards, and visual cues of Robinhood, it is very similar to a slot machine or a casino. And I think it's resulting in a group, a cohort of young men that are becoming addicted, aren't learning about investing, aren't even learning about trading, but they're gambling. The result is that the story stocks that get talked about on CNBC are skyrocketing. Tesla's now worth more than the other three biggest automobile companies combined. But I don't think this story ends well. So the question is, if we had young men and women getting addicted to a company, a company's product that didn't really seem to have much regard for their well-being, would we do something about it? I think that's where we are right now with Robinhood. I think if we could have, we would have intervened on Facebook earlier. I think we're at that moment right now with Robinhood. I would describe Robinhood joins Facebook and Uber uh, as part of the menace economy. And that is, it is arbitraging people's addiction to increase shareholder value.
0: So why don't you talk about the difference between a Robinhood and a company that you say you're an investor in called Public. I think you're also an investor of Lemonade, which is for the insurance industry also needing a big time disruption. Talk about how you see those as advancing financial services.
1: Well, Lemonade is just a disruptor. 55%, somewhere between 45 and 55% of insurance premiums go to profitability or administration. You know, you're charming sales rep or to profitability. It's been an amazing industry, which means you get kind of 45 to 55 cents on the dollar back in terms of claims. And Lemonade is trying to use technology to dramatically compress those margins. So I think it's just a better deal for the end consumer, it's leveraging technology to build better actuarial tables. And it's also got a reputation as a disruptor. And in this environment, once you have that reputation, you have access to more cheap capital, which gives you the opportunity to innovate more and creates this kind of upward spiral. So I'm an investor in Lemonade. The reason I invested in public was I was really kind of rattled by the death of Alex Kearns, a 20 year old who mistakenly thought that he was down $700,000 and threw himself in front of a train. And I thought that sort of embodied the lack of regard for the health of its consumers that Robinhood represents. They committed to giving $250,000 to a mental health charity and said they were gonna hire an option specialist, and we've seen almost no progress from them. Whereas if you look at Charles Schwab's site, there's all sorts of warnings. There's all sorts of education about the importance of investing. Whereas if you go on Robinhood, Graffiti falls from the ceiling every time you trade, and then you get what feels like a jackpot every time your stocks are up each day, and you find yourself clicking this thing. You Even if you click a button 100 times like a rat, it unlocks a higher yield checking account. And there's even been instances where people have seen their money being stolen out of their account and they can't get any customer service on the phone because they don't see you as the customer. They see you as the input of the product. I invested in public because they're taking a different approach. They don't allow options or margin trading. They're very upfront about the risks. They're trying to ensure that they don't implement these types of gamification or visual cues that result In addiction. I think investing as a young person is a fantastic way to build wealth. I think the stock market is wonderful. I think it's a great way to learn about companies. I'm a big fan of investing in trading platforms. But I think we need something where they see the end consumers, the customer, and they see them as a stakeholder and they're focused on ensuring that those stakeholders Continue to benefit as opposed to just totally focused on shareholder value, even if it means addicting your end consumer and turning them into the product. So I'm an investor
0: in public. So last question from nephew Douglas, a 26-year-old working at a boutique management consulting firm in NYC without a clear five-year plan, who is considering business school. What is the value of graduate business school for my nephew? He wants to know.
1: It's a great question and it's situational. There's some some um, nuance here. I would ask Douglas a few questions. First is what are his opportunity costs? Is he at a place where he's killing it? He has senior level sponsorship. His income is accelerating. Because a lot of times people grow up thinking, I have to go to graduate school. My parents went to graduate school. That's just a standard box I need to check. And what I say to a lot of people is keep in mind, when you leave, we're going to recruit and replace you with someone who's coming out of business school. So, if you're using it as a means to get ahead, you're already there. So, it's opportunity cost. If he doesn't like what he's doing and he doesn't know what he wants to do and and he has the money, you know, this is so expensive now, and he can get into a top 20 school, quite frankly, I don't think you should go to business school unless you go to a top 20 school. It's too damn expensive. You're paying a Mercedes price tag for a Hyundai price. So, if you're going to pay a Mercedes price tag, it's $160,000 in tuition and board to go to NYU, you need to get the Mercedes so it's situational his opportunity costs his prospects if he stays where he is does he know what he wants to do if the answer is no business school is a great place for what i call the elite and the aimless does he have the money to pay for it and does he get into a top 20 school he has to weigh all of these things and then make a sober decision what he doesn't want to do is go to graduate school because that's what he's been told he has to do end up at a mediocre school paying a premium price. And coming out with a lot, not a lot of economic bump and security, because it has gotten so expensive. It used to be a no brainer. You got into business school, you went. It's no longer a no brainer. You really have to be thoughtful about your position economically and professionally and where you get into school.
0: Well, that's it. That's the second part of our interview with Scott Galloway. Uh, I, I think it's worth maybe another listen, even. If you go back to our broadcast with him, which was from the springtime, so much of what he had thought was happening at that time has panned out. So he's a pretty smart guy. The book is called Post Corona From Crisis to Opportunity. We do want to thank Scott. He was very generous with his time. Uh, I like to do this at least once a week. Our music here at the Jill on Money Show is composed by Joel Goodman. You know, his brother was on last weekend, Michael Goodman. Mark Telercio is our executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13. As always, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and please do something nice for somebody today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.